say it. I want to jump right in and, uh, and then take a step back and explain. Solomon ben Samson writes in his Chronicle of the First Crusade, which, by the way, is actually a Hebrew chronicle, but I brought you the English translation. He begins the chronicle as follows. It was on the 3rd of Sivan at noon, which is Tuesday, May 23rd, 1096, that Emiko the wicked, the enemy of the Jews, came with his whole army against the city gate, and the citizens opened it up for him. <coughs> Emiko, a German noble, led a band of plundering German and French crusaders. Then the enemies of the Lord said to each other, Look, they have opened the gate for us. Now let us avenge the blood of the hanged one. The children of the Holy Covenant who were there, martyrs who feared the Most High, although they saw the great multitude, an army numerous as the sand on the shore of the sea, still clung to their creator. Then young and old donned their armor and girded on their weapons, and at their head was Rabbi Kolonimus ben Meshulam, the chief of the community. Yet because of the many troubles and the fasts which they had observed, they had no strength to stand up to the enemy. <coughs> then came the gangs and bands sweeping through like a flood until Mayence was filled from end to end. The foe Emiko proclaimed in the hearing of the community that the enemy be driven from the city and be put to flight. Panic was great in the town. Each Jew in the inner court of the bishop girded on his weapons and all moved toward the palace gate to fight the crusaders and the citizens. They fought each other up to the very gate, but the sins of the Jews brought it about that the enemy overtook them, overcame them, and took the gate. The hand of the Lord was heavy against his people. All the Gentiles were gathered together against the Jews in the courtyard to blot out their name, and the strength of our people weakened when they saw the wicked Edomites overpowering them. The bishop's men who had promised to help them were the very first to flee, thus delivering the Jews into the hands of the enemy. They were indeed a poor support. Even the bishop himself fled from his church, for it was thought to kill him also, because he had spoken good things of the Jews. When the children of the covenant saw that the heavenly decree of death had been issued, and that the enemy had conquered them and had entered the courtyard, then all of them, old men and young, virgins and children, servants and maids, cried out together to their Father in heaven, and weeping for themselves and for their lives, accepted as just the sentence of God. One to another, they said, let us be strong and let us bear the yoke of the holy religion, for only in this world can the enemy kill us, and the easiest of the four deaths is by sword. But we, our souls in paradise, shall continue to live eternally in the great shining reflection of the divine glory. Then all of them to a man cried out with a loud voice, Now we must delay no longer, for the enemy are already upon us. Let us hasten and offer ourselves as a sacrifice to the Lord. Let him who has a knife examine it, that it not be nicked, and let him come and slaughter us for the sanctification of the only one, the everlasting. And then let him cut his own throat and plunge the knife into his own body. Okay. Okay, so this, the, what's being described here are the, is the events that befell the community of Mayence. Mayence is... Uh, the Hebrew pronunciation of the German city of Mainz, uh, Mainz, M-A-I-N-Z, in its contemporary spelling, uh, which was one of the great, one of the well-established communities of Germany, of German Jews at that point. And what's being described here in very vivid detail, and the Chronicle goes on uh, to provide many more uh, gruesome descriptions of how the Jews of Mainz reacted to this attack by the crusading bands as they swept in to the city. 
the response being this, this awful decision to slaughter themselves, to slaughter their children, rather than allow themselves to fall into the hands of the crusading bands. This description uh, by Solomon ben Samson was written sometime during the middle of the 12th century, describing, as we saw in that very first line, events that happened during, at the beginning of the First Crusade in 1096. But historians believe that it was based on an earlier source, which was actually an eyewitness report of these events, describing the responses not only of the Jews of Mainz to the onslaught of the crusading armies, this is the First Crusade, but also the response of the communities of Speyer, of Worms, of Köln, of Cologne, which were the main Jewish communities in the area, and specifically the main Jewish communities to come under this attack by the Crusaders. What this text is describing, or what this text, the text that we've seen, is beginning to describe, and again, the continuation of the Chronicle, which those of you who are interested can look up uh, at this website or in various <coughs> other printed editions, what the remainder of the Chronicle describes is a response that has been characterized by historians or has been explained by historians as the birth of a new theology, the theology of Kiddush Hashem, the theology of the sanctification of the name, uh, this response on the part of the Jewish communities faced by this persecution uh, who chose to martyr themselves, to slaughter themselves, rather than face what seemed to be a decision either between death at the hands of these crusading bands or forced conversion to Christianity. And much has been discussed in uh, the historical literature about the development of this theology, about this response on the part of these Jewish communities to this persecution. Why did they respond in this way? Was there precedent for it? How did they justify these responses on halachic grounds? Right? Because it could be thought of, these, this decision to kill themselves could be thought of as suicide. Um, and that is certainly a fascinating topic uh, that's definitely worthy of investigation and of study on its own, in its own right. But this morning, uh, excuse me, this afternoon, um, what I actually want us to take a look at and to examine together is not the development of this response this immediate response to persecution on the part of these Jewish communities, but rather the response of the halachic authorities on a broader scale to what became a series of ongoing persecutions that faced the communities of medieval Ashkenaz, of medieval Germany and northern France during this period. And specifically, what we're going to be looking at are the way in which the halachic authorities in these communities dealt with questions concerning the boundaries of the community, by which I mean the definitions of who belonged to the community and who did not belong to the community. More explicitly, how these ba'aleha halacha, how these halachic authorities dealt with questions concerning converts to Judaism and converts from Judaism, in the face of these types of pressures, in the face of these types of circumstances. And I think, I hope, that that 
look, that that halachic discussion, or our look at that halachic discussion, will provide another window onto ways in which Jewish communities, and in this case, halachic authorities or halachic communities, deal with major catastrophes, with major events, such as the Crusades. This is all very obviously historically located, so I don't mean to make a sweeping universal claim, but I hope that the particular will give us another window onto that larger question. That being said, I want to, I want to take a step back, or I want to add a couple of caveats to the picture that was presented in the source that we just read. Unfortunately, I wasn't here this morning, um, but I understand that in your morning sessions, you've been taking a look at responses to the destruction of the Mikdash. Um, and I know that in other classes over the course of this series of learning sessions, you'll be taking a look at responses to other major changes, be they major catastrophes or major technological advances, where there's a clear event and the question is, what is the response, various different types of responses, be they theological or halakhic, to that particular event? This afternoon, we're going to be taking a look at halakhic responses to what is not so clear as an event. Right? We are talking about halakhic responses to medieval persecutions, and we have just read a chronicle or a description of some responses to the First Crusade. But it's not entirely clear what the impact of the First Crusade and of subsequent Crusades were on the Jewish communities of Ashkenaz, either physically or in other ways. Um, I've noted that there, are, there were theological ramifications to this particular catastrophe, but historians debate just how catastrophic the First Crusade was in terms of numbers, in terms of the, sustain of the sustainedness of these persecutions. Um, so just to, take a, just to take a step back, the Jewish communities in Ashkenaz prior to 1096 were actually not very old. As a matter of fact, one of the first documents that we have, clear-cut documents concerning the establishment of Jewish communities in Ashkenaz, is actually from just a few years before this first crusade, um, and that is from the year 1084, there's a very famous charter that was granted to the Jews of Mainz, this community that we just read about, actually by the Bishop of Speyer, which was another one of the neighboring communities that I mentioned, inviting the Jews to leave Mainz and to come settle in his lands in Speyer. And in the course of trying to encourage them to come and join his community in Speyer, the Bishop of Speyer granted them all sorts of privileges. Uh, some economic privileges, the opportunity to have autonomous rule over their own selves, over their own community, and various other protections. Um, and that document, again, which is one of the first documents that we have concerning, explicit documents that we have, concerning the establishment of Jewish communities in Germany, makes it very clear that, in fact, some members of the local population, namely uh, the religious authorities, were actually very welcoming of Jews, actually wanted Jews to be settling in their communities, seemingly for economic reasons, right? Not because they uh, perhaps had great love of Jews, but they wanted the Jews who were at the time merchants uh, to come and settle in their communities. They thought that this would be a good thing for the establishment and for the advancement of their communities. Um, and so we have a few documents like that 
from the years really just prior to the First Crusade, which seemed to present some kind of some kind of uh, contradiction in terms, right? It seems as though just before these terrible events that have been described, the local communities were actually welcoming of the Jews. We know that Jewish communities had already been uh, established to some extent in Germany, probably for about 100 to 150 years prior to the First Crusade, right? Those documents that were issued in the years leading up to the First Crusade reflect the fact that there already were Jews living in this area, right? The Bishop of Speyer is welcoming Jews from Mainz, who were obviously already living in Mainz. Um, and we have some indication from Jewish sources that yeshivot, small yeshivot, uh, small communities of scholars had already been established in Germany, but not for such a very long time. Right, and the earliest real clear reports that we have of Jewish communities, uh, certainly of scholarly communities living in Germany, are only from about 100 to 150 years prior to the First Crusade. Such that it seems like the First Crusade was very shocking, was sort of unprecedented or unpredicted by the communities of, of medieval Germany, uh, which is perhaps one of the reasons that they responded in this very extreme and shocking fashion. But that being said, it's not clear what the ongoing, what the long-term impact of these persecution was. The, the persecutions were clearly devastated, the communities uh, that I mentioned beforehand, those four main communities in Germany. Um, there were many martyrs, um, again, more martyrs, it seems, by their own hands than actually by the crusading bands. But it's not clear what long-term impact, other than theological, that tragedy had. And it does seem that in the years following the First Crusade, the communities in Germany did manage to regroup, did manage to reestablish some of these small yeshivot, did manage to reestablish the institutions of communal functioning. And it's not exactly clear, uh, as I said, what, what, what specifically the impact was. Um, we do know that in the 12th century, the centers of Torah learning seem to have shifted from Germany to France. Right? If you think about Rashi as an outstanding figure who, who many of us uh, are familiar with, Rashi had actually been in Ger Rashi, who was born in France, had been in Germany studying in Germany in the German academies towards the end of the 11th century, slightly before the events of this First Crusade. He was not in Germany at the time of the First Crusade. He had already gone back to France and established his own yeshiva there. But in the middle of the, of the 11th century, Rashi had traveled from France to Germany to study in those yeshivot because that's where the center of learning was. During the 12th century, Rashi and his uh, grandsons, the Baalea Tosafot, moved the center of learning from Germany to France. And the great yeshivot of the 12th century were actually the yeshivot of the Tosafists, of the Baalea Tosafot, not in Germany, but in France. Nonetheless, right, some would like, some historians perhaps would like to see that shift of centers of Torah learning from Germany to France as a response to the devastation of the First Crusade. But many contemporary historians actually challenge that account and suggest that, again, as far as the communities were concerned, the First Crusade didn't have such a lasting impact on this, because, the, because these institutions of learning really did manage to revive themselves. 
Um, and so the shift from Germany to France in terms of the center of learning, in terms of where the elite was focused, might have had to do with other factors and not necessarily as a direct response, or certainly not as a sole response to those events of the First Crusade. That being said, by the middle of the 12th century, the Jewish communities of Germany and surrounding areas faced again additional persecutions with the onslaught of the Second Crusade, uh, which was in 1145, and subsequently the Third Crusade, which was in 1189, and over the course of this century, over the course of this 12th century, not only did these persecutions become, these particular type of crusading persecutions become sustained, but the 12th century also saw the rise of what became, what came to be known as the blood libel. Um, the accusations against Jews and Jewish communities uh, of killing Christians for ritual purposes, of using Christian blood. Uh, the first uh, such libel actually took place in England in, 1140, in uh, 1144, but subsequently moved, uh, took place uh, in various guises in Germany and in other parts of Northern Europe as well. Um, so that the 12th century really becomes, over its duration, a century of increasingly sustained persecutions that the Jewish communities have to deal with. And by the time the Jewish communities of Northern Europe are facing the 13th century, their attitude toward their surroundings, uh, their sense of security, their sense of home, their sense of self in Northern Europe seems to have changed in a, in a more significant and indeed in a more sustained way. Right, so just to, just to reiterate, although it's not clear what the impact of the First Crusade was, over the duration of this century, if we look at the shift from the 12th to the 13th century, this type of persecution and this type of new reality does in fact seem to have been a sustained reality that the Jewish communities needed to contend with. And it's in that light, right, keeping that historical framework in mind, that I want to turn to address that question that I set out beforehand, how over the course of this period, right, the, from the First Crusade in 1095, or thereabouts, to the end of the 13th century, which perhaps we can punctuate with another major catastrophe for the Jewish communities of Germany, an event called the Rindfleisch Massacres, which took place in 1298, and I will return to that, right, if we, if we bookend this time frame, this period that, that I want to set out for us today, from the end of the 11th century to the end of the 13th century, over the duration of those 200 years, of those uh, two centuries, how did this shifting reality for the communities of Ashkenaz of Northern Europe, how did that impact the way in which the Ba'aleha Halakha, the way in which the Halakhic authorities treated this question of who is and who is not a part of the community? What are the boundaries the human boundaries, I guess we could say, of the Jewish community, and how, if at all, did their attitudes toward those questions perhaps uh, intersect with or were perhaps impacted by this shift, this change in, uh, in historical circumstance. I want to begin this, uh, addressing this question by taking a look at attitudes toward those who converted to Judaism. Proselytes, right? Individuals of other faiths, um, and because we're talking about Northern Europe, we're talking primarily about Christians, who chose 
in the duration of all of this, to actually join the Jewish people to convert to Judaism, to become Gerim converts uh, within the Jewish communities of Germany and Northern Europe. And I actually want to start, uh, I want to begin with a text from that very same Crusade Chronicle that we began to read just beforehand, which I think sheds significant uh, light on this question of the attitude towards those who had converted to Judaism who were converts within the community. So I'm looking now on page two, the second side of that first page, um, at source number one here, which you can see is again that Solomon ben Samson Crusade Chronicle. In the continuation of the Chronicle, in the continuation of his very description of the events in Mainz that we began to read about on the first page, Solomon ben Samson notes that among those who chose to martyr themselves, who chose to slaughter themselves for the sanctification of God's name, was a convert to Judaism. Um, and I want to pay careful attention to the way in which the chronicler describes this individual and his response to the events that we've begun to describe. Uh, you have the Hebrew text before you, but I'll read it in English. And there was a very good man there, and again, there is in Mainz, and his name was Jacob, son of Rabbi Sulam, but he was not from a respectable family, and his mother was not of Jewish descent. And he cried out in a loud voice to all those present, saying, Until now, you would shame me. Now see what I do. And he took the knife that it was in his hand and thrust it into his throat before the eyes of all and slaughtered himself in the name of the great and mighty one that is in the name of the God, Lord of hosts. Now again, this description of the slaughtering is very similar to this trope that repeats itself again and again throughout that chronicle. But in this brief description of this individual, right, who again was, whose mother was not of Jewish descent, who was not from a respectable family, what is the sense you get about the way, the way in which the Jews of Mainz related to individuals who, were, who had converted to their who had joined their community actively, who had converted to the Jewish faith. I know, again, I just want to clarify, right, this individual was the son of a mother who was not of Jewish descent. So he probably wasn't a convert himself, he was probably the son of a convert. Right? It seems as though his mother had been a convert. What is the sense from this very brief description that you get of the way in which these communities re related to converts in their midst? Yes? I don't know if you can generalize Okay, so on the one hand, we have that very opening line, which makes a point of noting that this individual was a very good man, right? Certainly a laudatory phrase. Right, so that, that's, that's a description of this individual that's worth noting, yes? The society is hierarchical, where you have Yekarim and, okay. al and also that um, he felt uh, shame by his compatriots. Okay, so those are very important things. First of all, you point out that he was not of a respectable family, right? In the Hebrew, he was not mimishpachat yikarim, right? The Ashkenazi society in general, as you point out, had very clear demarcations, uh, took uh, family background to be a very important signifier of who a person was, what a person's standing was within the community. This person, uh, perhaps coincidentally or perhaps not, Right, his mother was a convert. His father apparently was not from a respectable family, um, and that was perhaps not coincidental. 
right? The fact that his mother, the convert, was married to somebody who was not of particularly high standing within the community, who was not a good yichus. Um, and the other thing that you point out is also very critical, which is that this convert himself, or a son of convert, clearly felt, clearly had the sense that up until this moment, he was not well respected by the community. Right? He was not, he, the community had shamed him. And we don't have any of the details here, and it's true. We're generalizing on the basis of a very few words, but we'll, we'll, we'll take it with a grain of salt. In any event, it was clear that he did not consider himself to have very good standards or to be treated very well within the community. What is the act that he's undertaking, and what does he see as the significance of this act that he's about to undertake? Right? It, it clearly, it obviously has significance as a sanctification of the name, and it has significance for all the theological reasons that I mentioned, but on a personal level, yes, very much so, thank you. It seems very much like this individual is undertaking the act. For him, this act has significance not only for all of the reasons that it has significance for other members of the community, but it has personal, very personal significance insofar as this act, he sees this act as an opportunity to redeem himself, as an opportunity to make it clear that he is on par with everyone else in the community, that he is as holy or that he is as pious or that he is as willing to die for God's name as anyone else in the community, and that will finally perhaps grant him equal status. But what does become, I think, clear between the lines of this particular paragraph is that at least this individual, and I want to suggest that although this is only one example, this was not an atypical example, we have other sources that support this, that converts to Judaism at this particular juncture in Ashkenazi history were not necessarily viewed as the most upstanding or as the most mainstream or as the most pious or lofty or worthy of individuals. Yes, and, and again, I want to remind you, right, that this individual, the chronicler, does note he himself was quite a good man, right? So it's not that he himself was a sort of shady character. He was a fine and upstanding person and nonetheless. I'm sorry, yes, there was a question back there? Okay, so it's actually interesting. It seems as though um, the it seems as though his mother actually did convert to Judaism, although the text doesn't specify this. It seems necessary to understand that his mother did convert to Judaism and converted to Judaism before he was actually born, because he is because of the way in which he is considered um, a child of his parents. In other words, he himself was not a convert, and he is considered a child, so that the the familial ties were not broken, which would have happened at least telepathically had his mother converted after his birth. Um, and so therefore it seems as though his mother, although his mother is noted here as being not of Jewish descent, the idea is that she's not, she was not of Jewish descent, but she had converted to Judaism uh, prior, prior to his birth. Question. Yes. If we'll take one more quick question. Were found, if she found herself pregnant at the time that she converted, is okay, so that's a, that's a fascinating question. That's a fascinating question that has to do with uh, laws of conversion in general, right? The question was if the child, if the mother had become pregnant while she was still not Jewish and had converted in the course of the pregnancy, so the child was the uh, was conceived 
when the mother was a non-Jew and was actually birthed when the mother was a Jew? It's a fascinating halachic question um, that does get discussed during this period. Is also I want to I want to put aside. We could have um, very many interesting discussions about the laws of conversion. I want to put that aside for the moment because I want to focus on this question of the attitude of the communities toward these converts. And I know that there are more questions, and I'll be happy to take them afterwards, but I want to come back to these texts so that we don't get too far astray. This text, I want to argue, is representative of the attitudes at the beginning of the period that we're discussing. And in contrast, now this is not a halakhic text, and we're going to discuss the halakhic attitudes in just a moment, but on a social level, I think that it is uh, representative. And to bookend that, or to contrast that, to bring that into relief, I want to take a look at the second source that I've brought for you here, um, which is a citation or a, a short passage from the Nuremberger Memorbuch. Now, there's a lot that could be said about Memorbuchen, um, but just very briefly, a Memorbuch was a Sefer Zikaron, or a, uh, a memory book, uh, which it was apparently common for communities in Ashkenaz, all the way up to the present, uh, really all the way up into the contemporary times, um, to record the names of deceased members of their communities and thereby to preserve their memory. Um, now, this is one of the Nuremberger Memorbuch, happens to be one of the very earliest memory books that are known to exist. It what seems to have been started being written, started being inscribed at the end of the 13th century, so actually the period that we are, the end of the period that we're discussing, although it does include lists of both community members who died a natural death as well as community members who were martyred going all the way back to the First Crusade. Now, where exactly the community at the end of the 13th, or the scribe at the end of the 13th century got the information about what happened in the First Crusade is a fine question that many historians have weighed in on. But in any event, for our purposes, I want to take a look at this specific description of individuals who were martyred during the course of the 13th century. And I want to, the reason that I want to take a look at this particular paragraph is because the individuals who are being described here are themselves converts. And I think that the way in which this scribe or these, this community records the converts as martyrs gives testimony to a, I think, very significantly shifted attitude, again, to whatever extent we can look at these two texts as representative, toward converts by the time we get toward the end of the period that we're discussing today. So if you take a look at source number two, uh, the Memorbuch records, amongst the martyrs, Rabbi Abraham, son of Avraham Avinu, right, so clear that he's a convert, that's why he's being called Abraham, son of Avraham Avinu, from France, who was the leader among the barefoot ones who rejected the idols and came to be protected in the shadow of the wings of the Eternal One, and was burned in sanctification of the name. Right, and these are lists, so that's one entry. The next entry, Rabbi Avraham, son of Avraham Avinu from Augsburg, who rejected the gods of the nations and cut off the heads of idols and relied upon the Eternal One and was tortured with terrible tortures and burned in the sanctification, on the, in sanctification of the name on the new moon of Kislev, Friday, in the 25th year of the 6th millennium, which, by the way, is about 1265. Um, in addition, we have the next entry is Rabbi Isaac, also son of Avraham Avinu, right? So these are three converts who are being listed here from Würzburg, who was burned in sanctification of the name, and the list goes on and on. Um, but I think that in these brief descriptions of these, uh, of these converts, I think we see a very different attitude than that which was depicted in that first text that we took a look at in that little uh, paragraph from the Crusade Chronicle. How are the converts, how are these converts being described in this particular list, in this particular text? Yes. 
Tzadikim. It's tzadikim gmurim, right? It's very clear here that their actions and sanctification of the name did achieve what perhaps uh, that very good man, Yaakov Barsulam, hoped that his act of sanctification would achieve. Right? It did, in fact, get them uh, into the register of those holy ones, of those pious ones, uh, who were definitely uh, considered to be upstanding and full-fledged members of the community. Yes? So that's a, that's a good point. I mean, it's not clear because what we have here is a list of martyrs, right? So it's hard to know, right, what the attitude toward these individuals was prior to their death in sanctification of the name and to their being listed on this list of martyrs. Of course, again, these sources here are not necessarily the most uh, absolute evidence, uh, but nonetheless, I want to claim they're representative, right? And you'll have to trust me on that one or trust uh, the various scholars who've done this work. Um, that they are representative of shifting attitudes toward converts. But I want to take that one step further, right? Keeping those sort of social history sources or social history uh, testimony in mind, I want to take a look now at shifting halakhic attitudes because that really is our focus. And in the next, uh, the next several minutes, I want to take a look at the way, at least briefly, with some representative samples, I want to take a look at the way in which attitudes toward converts to Judaism, and specifically their integration into the community via their inclusion in prayer, in the prayer community, the way in which that shifted over the course of this period. A question that came up uh, in the context, and interestingly, it did not seem to come up uh, well, a, a significant question with regards to the integration of a convert to Judaism in the Jewish community has to do with that individual's sort of seamless integration into the prayer community insofar as our prayers, the language of our prayers, is over and over again fairly explicit with regards to our heritage, with regards to our biological ancestry, with regards to our historical background. And the question of how a convert to Judaism relates to or recites or becomes included in those prayers um, is a question that halakhic authorities from various different periods had to address. The actual, the first time that this came up, and again, we're going to be focusing on the way in which halakhic authorities from this moment in Ashkenaz addressed it, but just to provide some background, an important source for understanding the questions that faced Ashkenazi authorities is the next source, is this Mishnah in Bikurim. I'm sorry, I see that the numbering got a little bit messed up here um, in the English side, but we are on source number three. You can see that in the Hebrew side. The Mishnah in Bikurim uh, states as follows. Elo mivi'in v'lokorin. Right, the following individuals bring first fruits, right? We are in the Mishnah of Bikurim. The Mishnah of Bikurim is the Mishnah that deals with the bringing of first fruits to the temple on the holiday of Shavuot. Um, and the Torah had already specified that when one brings the first fruits, one brings them and recites a declaration, right? That is, uh, that is recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. Now here, the Mishnah is listing individuals who bring, who are obligated to bring first fruits, but are not obligated to recite that declaration from the book of Deuteronomy. And the first individual that the Mishnah lists here is the ger, is the convert to Judaism. 
Right? The convert brings first fruits but does not recite the declaration because he cannot say, I have come to the land which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us, which is part of that declaration from Deuteronomy 26. The Mishnah goes on to say, if his mother was an Israelite, he does bring and recite. Right? So if he's partially Jewish, then he can include himself in that description of our forefathers. When he prays Shemona Esrei in private, right, which is a further ramification of this idea that he cannot include himself in that statement of our forefathers, if he, uh, when he prays Shemona Esrei in private, instead of saying the God of our fathers, he said the God of the fathers of Israel. And when he prays in the synagogue, he says the God of your fathers. But if his mother was an Israelite, he says the God of our fathers. Right, so what is the Mishnah specifying here? What is the opinion of the Mishnah with regards to the inclusion of a convert in the prayer community? Yes? He can never really be integrated fully into the Jewish people. There will always be a little gap between him and the rest, uh, rest of the Jewish people. Although the issue to me would be, what about his children? Does this go on okay, forever? Okay, so that's a very good what? question. Really what about the... Gap. Okay, excellent. So that's a great question as to what about the children of this convert, but here we're focusing on this individual himself who is praying clearly with the community or bringing first fruits together with the community and is obligated to do so because he is now an Israelite and is fully obligated in all of the mitzvot. And the question is, what about his statements of belonging, right? Or what about those language, that language of prayer or of the declaration of the first fruits, which seem not to be sort of non-appropriate? for him to recite insofar as they do not reflect his own historical or biological reality. Yes? So the general rule, I think we, we say, like, usually not appropriate to remind someone of their past if there's a chance they can be like, shamed or embarrassed by it, but here we actually force him to remind himself of his own. Right. And that's, that's an excellent point, right? It seems a little bit strange or troublesome um, that we're instructing a convert to Judaism to engage in this constant reminder, both to himself and perhaps to the people around him, that he's not actually a full-fledged, or, or that his past, certainly, uh, is not the same as the past of the other members of this community. Um, now, I would point out right, that the Mishnah makes a very clear distinction between praying in private and praying with the community. And I want to actually suggest that Praying with the community means, or praying in the synagogue means, when he himself is the shliach tzibur, is the prayer leader for the community. Right? There is that shift. Nonetheless, even when he's acting as a prayer leader for the community, right? What is he instructed to say? He's instructed to say, Elokei avotechem, right? The God of your fathers, right? Which is still exclusionary language, right? Which still makes it clear to everyone that he is different than everybody else, right? So this is a bit of a, it's, it's, it's I think, uh, a troublesome mishnah. Um, on the other hand, right, the other, the flip side of that um, is that we want the language of our prayers or the language of our declarations to reflect honesty, to reflect reality, to reflect uh, the true nature of our relationship with God, of our relationship with uh, the community that we're praying in, right? And so we do want the language of prayer to be specific and attuned to the reality. Um, and one could imagine that perhaps uh, the convert himself might feel that making these declarations um, that do not accord with his own reality, that seem to sort of erase his own specificity, his own uh, distinctiveness, um, could also be something that 
someone who has converted to Judaism would perhaps feel a bit uncomfortable with. Um, so that's, I think, a very, a, very, uh, a very important question on the religious theological level. Um, but I want to point out that although, right, so this is the Mishnah in Masechet Bikurim, um, although the Talmud Bavli accepts that Mishnah more or less at face value and runs with that particular approach to a convert's language of prayer, the Talmud Yerushalmi actually adopts a different position. Right? And here we're still w- well before medieval Ashkenaz. We're going to get to medieval Ashkenaz as a moment, in a moment. But just in order to understand what happened in medieval Ashkenaz, I want to take a quick look at the next source, source number four, which is the Talmud Yerushalmi's discussion of that Mishnah from Masechet Bikurim. And here the Talmud Yerushalmi says it was taught in a Brita in the name of Rabbi Yehuda. So we have a Brita which is parallel to the Mishnah that we just read. Rabbi Yehuda taught, a convert himself brings first fruits and recites the declaration. Right? So Rabbi Yehuda seems to be contradicting the author of the Mishnah. What is the reason? Why does a convert recite the declaration? Well, it says in Genesis, with regards to Avraham Avinu, for the father of a multitude of nations I have made you. In the past you were the father of Aram only, right? Avram. But now this is what God says to Avraham when he changes his name from Avram to Avraham. But now, from here henceforth, you are the father of all nations, right? How does this help the convert? Well, when the convert says, the God of our fathers, the convert too. Basically, everybody in the world is a child of Abraham. And God did indeed, in fact, right, when we say the God of our fathers, we say first and foremost, the God of Abraham. And this convert is truly a child of Abraham, just as anybody in the world is. And so there's no reason, according to Rabbi Yehuda, that the convert can't accurately and appropriately and full-heartedly say, God of our fathers. And the Talmud Yerushalmi goes on to say that in response to that Brita, that opinion of Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi said, the halacha is like Rabbi Yehuda. And when they brought the matter before Rabbi Abahu, who was a later Amora, he instructed in accordance with Rabbi Yehuda. So it's very clear that the Yerushalmi, in contrast to the Mishnah and in contrast to the Talmud Bavli, rules that a convert should be reciting tefillot, whether it's a declaration on the first fruits or by implication other tefillot, in the same language as everybody else in a fully inclusionary manner. Yes, I see a few couple, a couple of very quick questions. Yes? Um, yeah, you said by, it, 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 it assumes that it also, the second one, that it also includes the Amidah, but there, there's a big contrast between Shavuot, which comes once a year, and the Amidah, which comes three times a day. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and the reason that I said by implication includes the, the prayers are because we saw in the Mishnah itself that the Mishnah makes that connection. Right? The Mishnah first talks about the first fruit and then talks about the way in which that carries over to the, the convert's recitation of Shemona Esri, meaning in the daily prayers that we say three times a day. Um, and so it seems as though the Yerushalmi also, by implication, extends its ruling, that ruling of Rabbi Yehuda, not only to the first fruit, which not only is it only once on Shavuot, but it's no longer applicable today, to the prayers, which continue to be very applicable, as you say, on a constant basis. Yes, there was one other qu- question back there. Okay, well, the, the Mishnah seems to be, po- or excuse me, the Rabbi Yehuda and the Brayta seems to be pointing to Abraham. Abraham was the convert of converts, right? Abraham was the father of all converts. But also, when God changed his name from Avram to Abraham, became, at least metaphorically, the father of 
all nations. Right? And so in that regard, both as the prototypical convert right, and sort of the, the model that every future convert can look back to um, as, as a role model, um, and also as, again, at least the metaphorical father of all nations, allows for the convert to say God of our fathers in a very accurate and appropriate and full-fledged manner. Right? That's, I think, the idea behind Rabbi Huda's statement. Um, by the way, for anyone who's interested in this particular uh, this particular question, one great source to take a look at further, which is beyond the bounds of our discussion today, is actually Maimonides, the Rambam's letter to Ovadia Hager, where he discusses this Mishnah and the Brita um, and delves deeply into the implications of, of that ruling. But in any case, our, for our purposes, the reason that we're interested in this discussion is because we want to, I want to take a look at the way in which medieval Ashkenazi sages in the course, again, of our period from the 11th to 13th century related to this question on a very practical level, right? How much was the convert to Judaism in the community? How much was the convert to Judaism out of the community? What exactly was the demarcation? What exactly were the boundaries of the community itself, right? And I think that this issue can perhaps provide us a lens onto that question. Um, I did not bring for you here, but I'll just say by way of background um, that various scholars have pointed to Rashi, to the commentary of Rashi, and again we said Rashi was a figure right, who really represents the beginning of that time period, who was alive at the time of the First Crusade, who was a product of those yeshivot that flourished in Germany prior to the First Crusade, that Rashi himself and his various comments on passages both in the Torah and in his commentary on the Gemara, in many different places, seems to adopt a less than laudatory, a less than uh, welcoming attitude toward converts to Judaism. Um, and I won't get into it right now, the ways in which that, uh, that expresses itself, um, but I do want to keep that in mind. Rashi seems to be one of the outstanding figures from that period who really, again, to the extent that he's representative of that early school of thought, does not seem to be in favor of fully embracing and fully integrating converts into the community. Right? He does not by any means suggest that people should not convert, but he seems to be a bit skeptical about the ability of a convert to fully, entirely, completely integrate within the community and about the appropriateness of the community fully uh, embracing such an individual. But what I do want to take a look at um, with relation to our question is a commentary of the Tosafists. Again, Rashi's grandchildren. So we're talking about the Tosafists. We're talking about after the First Crusade, right? But during the 12th century, in that period that I described beforehand, is really the transition period, uh, both in terms of the events and the reality of the communities in Ashkenaz. And I want to suggest also transitional in this regard, in terms of attitudes toward converts to Judaism. So if you take a look at source number five, uh, which is, I'm sorry, three, mistakenly three on the English, uh, this is on page three of your handout. In the context of a discussion in the Gemara that directly relates to this question, the Tosafists provide the following, uh, the following reflection. On the basis of that Mishnah, and that Mishnah is the Mishnah that we just saw from Masechet Bikurim, Rabbeinu Tam did not allow converts to lead the grace after meals. Because a convert cannot say, that you bequeathed to our fathers a good land, etc. Right, so Rabbeinu Tam seemingly 
ruling in accordance with the Mishnah, in accordance with the Mishnah, as opposed to Rabbi Yehuda in the Brita and the Yerushalmi that we saw. Rabbi Tam seems squarely in the camp of those who believe that a convert cannot be fully integrated into this prayer community. Right, that a convert, not only can he not say Shemona Esrei in the same, or she say Shemona Esrei in the same language as everyone else in the community, even leading the grace after meals is problematic because the grace after meals, like so many, like virtually every one of our other prayers, has passages that refer to God's historical relationship with the Jewish people, and a convert cannot fully say those words and include him or herself. So that was Rabbeinu Tam's position, which again, accords with Rashi, accords with his predecessors, from, that, from that, that early period of Ashkenazi Jewry. But critically, the next figure or the next opinion who is listed here in this Tosafist passage is the nephew of Rabbeinu Tam, the very famous Rehazaken, Rabbi Isaac of Dampierre, who disagreed with his uncle. Um, he's also a very famous figure who comes up often in the context of the printed Tosafist and other Tosafist passages. And Rabbi Isaac, very critically, right, he was a younger contemporary of his uncle, Rabbeinu Tam. So he's living in the middle of the 12th century. And he very critically said, it seems to me that it is appropriate for the convert to say to our fathers. In other words, the convert can lead the grace after meals the same way that anybody else would. And we do not rule in accordance with that Mishnah, but rather in accordance with Rabbi Yehuda, who disputes it. Now, how does Rabbeinu Tam deal with that Brita? Well, the continuation of that passage in the Tosafot say, Rabbeinu Tam says, oh yeah, that passage from the Yerushalmi is corrupted, right? right? And that's, he sort of gets around ever dealing with that passage from the Yerushalmi, ever dealing with Rabbi Huda's opinion. Now, again, these are, these are sort of stray comments, the way that they're presented here. Um, and you perhaps are thinking to yourself that it's hard to build an entire theory on the basis of these stray comments. Uh, but again, I do want to suggest that these are representative and can be backed up with many other uh, with many other discussions, which seem to point to the fact that over the course of the 12th century, there is a shift in terms of the attitude towards those who have converted to Judaism from the sort of lukewarm stance of Rashi, of Rabbeinu Tam, of the early Ashkenazi authorities, to a much more warm, embracing stance that's adopted by Riev Dampierre, the nephew of Rabbeinu Tam, and by many of his students, contemporaries, and later Ashkenazi authorities. And to make that a bit more explicit, I want to take a, le- a look at one additional source, and that source number, again, it should be six, mistakenly four in the English side, and then I will take questions, just one moment. Um, and that is a, an issue that was addressed. Now, I wrote here that it's from Sefer Ra'avya, and you can see that I wrote Ra'avya was Rabbi Eliezer ben Joel Halevi, Right, and you can see he lived from in the second half of the 12th into the 13th century. This question that he includes in his collection of responsa was actually addressed to his father, Rabbi Joel Halevi, right, again, who was a sort of contemporary of Riev Dampierre and, again, a younger contemporary of Rabbeinu Tam. It, it's a fa- this happens to be a fascinating response, which I just brought a few citations from, but it's a similar question to that which we've been addressing. Right, and he writes as follows, a spirit came forth from God and rested on the heart of this man, Rabbi Abraham, son of Abraham, our forefathers. Right? So he's describing an event that happened with regards, again, to someone who is very clearly a convert to Judaism, Rabbi Abraham, son of Abraham, our forefather. And when the spirit rested upon him, he drew near to the service of God to seek out the Lord and to study scripture and the Holy Tongue. Right? So a rather laudatory description of this man's personal journey to Judaism. 
And he dwelt with us for many days, and he was a pure person and an upright dweller of tents. And he goes on and on and on, singing this man's praises. He also told me, but this man reported to Rabbi, Rabbi Yoel Halevi, that in Würzburg, despite this whole history, this whole uh, very praiseworthy background, they prevented him from praying as a leader of the congregation. And what does Rabbi Yoel Halevi write? It seems to me that they dived into mighty waters and brought up clay in their hands. Right? They were wrong, those people in Würzburg. For although there is a Mishnah in Tractate Bikurim, these bring but don't recite, again a reference to that Mishnah that we saw, nonetheless in the Jerusalem Talmud it is taught in the name of Rabbi Yehuda that a convert himself brings and recites. And since the sages of the Talmud rule in accordance with Rabbi Yehuda, and not like the Mishnah, and he's clearly re- referring to those later sages mentioned in the Yerushalmi, and there is even a case in which they ruled thus, we uphold their ruling. And he, meaning this Rabbi Abraham ben Abraham the convert, prevailed upon me to state my opinion, and thus I did. Right, so this is a very clear, explicit, straightforward statement of support for the inclusion of this convert, for allowing this convert to function as a normative prayer leader in the community and a rejection of the position of apparently the sages or the community members of Würzburg who rejected him from doing so. Why did that shift happen over the course of the period that we've been discussing? Right? This is already towards the end of the 12th century, um, but if one were to take a look, were to trace this issue into uh, the writings of the halakhic authorities of the 13th century, it becomes even more clear that this is the dominant trend. Right? That there's a shift towards greater embrace more full-fledged embrace of converts. Why did this happen during this period? Now, it's historically, methodologically, a little tricky, uh, always, to draw direct lines between extra halachic events, such as I was describing at the beginning of our, of our session, and halachic rulings, such as the ones that we've been taking a look at now. But nonetheless, ba'alei halacha are not divorced from whatever social reality they happen, or economic or other reality they happen to be living in. And I wanted to suggest that this clear shift in halachic attitude is not coincidental. We are going to take a break momentarily for a little bit of Chavruta learning time. Um, So I want to leave you uh, with that question. What do you think this particular shift might possibly represent why might there have been this very clearly marked change in attitude towards the convert to Judaism over the course of these centuries. However, uh, with that in the backs of your minds, what I actually want you to take a look at, um, I would say for the next uh, 20 minutes to half an hour or so, is actually the beginning of the beginnings of the next shift or the next uh, halachic issue that we're going to address and that is, as I mentioned earlier, the attitude of halachic authorities during this time period to individuals, Jewish individuals, who converted from Judaism, right, who left the Jewish fold and actually, again, because we're talking about Northern Europe, for the most part became Christians. Um, And so keeping the question of the shift that we just described regarding converts to Judaism in mind, I want you to take a look Um, at the last page of the handout um, where I provided you with three responsa three responsa from three different time periods Um, I'd like you to take a look at these responsa and by the way the Hebrew um, for the last one for number C number C 
sorry if this is confusing, but number C corresponds with source number one on page four. So for those of you who want to take a look at the Hebrew, uh, please do so on page four. But I want you to take a look at these three responsa. First of all, note what... Again, the, the three responses that I want you to take a look at together in Chavruta are on the last page of the handout, on page 8. Right? I was just pointing out, for those who want to study the text in Hebrew, that source number C here corresponds to source number 1 on page 4, where there is Hebrew provided, for those who want that. But I'd like you to take a look at these three responses, and I provided a list of guiding questions for you to begin to think about this question of the way in which attitudes toward converts from Judaism uh, were formed or, or expressed themselves during this period. Um, and for those who managed to get through those texts and are looking for more challenges, um, again, back on page four, where the top of the page is labeled attitudes toward converts from Judaism, right again, source number one corresponds to the text that you have on the back page. Um, but you can begin to take a look at sources number two, three, etc., which begin to address this question and which we'll see together when we reconvene, again, in about half an hour from now. Okay? Um, and certainly anybody who has questions that I did not get a chance to address is more than welcome to come and address me. I'll be walking around. Can you explain again what exactly would you like us to do? Okay. For, uh, anybody, for anybody who is not clear, just a very quick recap. I want everybody quickly uh, to find themselves a Chavruta pair or a Chavruta triplet and to begin to look at the three responsa on the back of the packet and to address the questions that I spelled out for you on that last page. Those who get through those sources can turn back to page four and continue asking those same questions with reference to the sources on page four, five, and the remainder of the handout. With your permission, um, I'd like to ask that everybody just finish up whatever sentences they're in the middle of um, so that we can, we can reconvene. Excuse me. Okay. Um, I want to start this half of our, of our discussion with another story. Um, if I started last time with a story from the, end, from the beginning of the period under discussion, I want to start this, uh, this half with a story from the period at the end of our focus today. Um, on the 13th of Av, in the year 5058, the Jewish year 5058, which was 1298, according to the secular calendar, a wave of anti-Jewish violence that I alluded to beforehand swept through Franconia and the neighboring vicinities until it reached the city of Würzburg in Germany. Um, incited by a German nobleman whose name was Rindfleisch, who had been stirring up crowds throughout the summer with allegations of host desecration, which we mentioned beforehand, and other charges against the Jews, the citizens of Würzburg joined these bands of murderous knights and massacred nearly 900 Jews, earning the city the moniker, this is Würzburg, the moniker Ir Damim, or City of Blood. In addition to the 800 Jewish residents of the city at the time, in a, the, the, the same mem Nuremberger Memorbuch that we saw beforehand records an additional, the additional names of 100 visiting Jews 
who were caught up in this deadly violence in Würzburg, which comprises the largest group, that 900 comprises the largest group of martyrs among 130 German Jewish communities that were affected by this wave of massacres that came to be known as the Rindfleisch massacres in the year 1298. Now, among the unfortunate visitors to Würzburg, who was caught up by these murderous bands, was an individual named Simeon ben Jacob, um, who was actually from the community of Worms, who had come to Würzburg, coincidentally, to pay and collect business debts. Following this massacre, three witnesses reported Simeon's death, and on the basis of their testimonies, the Jewish court in his hometown of Worms declared his wife a widow and granted her permission to remarry. Now, sometime later, the father of this woman, who unfortunately doesn't have a name, so we'll call her Simeon's widow, acting as her agent, came before a second court, a second basin, in the town of Spire, right? All these communities will beginning to sound familiar. He came before a second basin in the town of Spire, this time to claim her ketubah payment, only part of which had been allocated to her by that original basin in Worms. But this time, the widow's claim to her ketubah was contested by Simeon's heir, the dead man's heir, who was apparently a child from a different marriage. Now that child, who was apparently a minor at the time, was represented by his own agent, who happened to be a well-known scholar by the name of Rabbi Yedidiah ben Yisrael of Nuremberg. Um, and this Rabbi, Yisrael, Rabbi Yedidiah ben Yisrael, who we're going to, uh, whose, whose writings we're going to see in a, in a, in a few moments, um, asserted that the witnesses to Simeon's death back in Würzburg were invalid because they had been apostates at the living as Christians, Jewish Jews living as Christians at the time of the massacre, and therefore, because they were invalid witnesses, this widow had no legal claims to her ketubah money, and in fact, she couldn't properly be considered a widow at all. Right? She was... Now, it's not clear, right? It's possible that she was already remarried by this point in time. That's not entirely clear from the sources. Right? But the implications, whether she was or was not yet remarried, are certainly severe. Now, as you can imagine, a very protracted court battle ensued that involved judges, scholars, and rabbinic decisors from across Germany, Austria, and even as far away as Spain. Now, fascinatingly, the testimony of these witnesses, the, the original three uh, apostate witnesses, as well as the original court ruling from Worms, three sets of counterclaims that were presented by the agents of the respective agents of the widow and the heir, as well as the rulings of several prominent scholars that were uh, solicited by the court in Spire, and the ultimate ruling of the Spire Beitin, which was the second Beitin, all of these uh, all of these pieces of information have been recorded, collected and recorded um, in a collection of responsa by Rabbi Judah ben Asher of Toledo, who was the son of the very famous Rosh, the Rosh of uh, Rabbeinu Asher, who himself was an emigrant from Germany to northern Spain. Um, included in this collection is in fact a very long responsum written by the Rosh himself who signed the ruling issued by that spire court. In other words, he sat on the spire court, the second court that dealt with this case. It's very likely, in fact, 
that the Rosh, Rabbeinu Asher, brought this entire court file with him when he himself emigrated in the early 14th century following these massacres, when he himself emigrated from Germany to northern Spain, uh, indicative of the really the upheaval that was going on um, and the very unstable political situation, uh, untenable situation that these massacres precipitated. Um, and thereby, right, he, brought, he moved to Spain, brought the court file with him, and it made it, it ultimately made its way into the hands of his son, Rabbi Judah ben Asher, who published it along with his own responsum. Um, in addition to the sources that we have collected by uh, Rabbi Judah ben Asher, there actually also exist a number of additional responsa that are included in the collections of responsa by other contemporary scholars of the period. In other words, this was a very well-known and a very uh, a case that got a lot of airtime that was really uh, became a focal point for a lot of the halachic decisors um, and their deliberations on the events of the period. Now, in legal terms, the case of Simeon ben Jacob's widow was primarily about the credibility or the status of witnesses who are not or were not halakhically observant. Um, and therefore, and I, I want to claim that on a sociological level, this particular case is a, served for the halakhic decisors of the time as a vehicle for exploring the borderlines of the Jewish community and its attitude toward these individuals. Right, which is, again, going to be the focus of our discussion now, individuals who converted from Judaism, who left the Jewish fold uh, and, and moved uh, and adopted a different, a different religion. Um, and I think that the, the, the heightened tensions that we're going to see expressed in these responsa really uh, are, are testimony to the, the difficulty of dealing that, that the halakhic decisors of this, of this period faced in trying to grapple with these issues in the light of these changing realities that we've been discussing. Now, before we get to the actual responsa from this case, which uh, perhaps some of you have begun to see, um, a bit of background with regards to uh, with regards to attitudes toward converts from Judaism in Ashkenaz over the duration of this period, right? Because we're looking at this period of about two centuries from the First Crusade till the events that I've just mentioned uh, at the end of the 13th century. Now, in the 1950s, a very famous scholar of Jewish history, who some of you will perhaps be familiar with, Jacob Katz, um, argued that the attitude of Ashkenazi scholars towards apostates in general, and specifically towards apostates, meaning towards Jews who converted to Christianity and subsequently wanted to return to Judaism, right, regretted their actions and wanted to return, attitudes towards those individuals in particular, but apostates in general, he claimed, was remarkably forgiving. Um, especially, he argued, this, this was especially true if you contrast the attitudes toward apostates from this period with apostates from, right, and he's talking about the entire period of Ashkenazi Jewry, with the attitude toward apostates much later in early modern Europe, in Poland, in Eastern Europe, uh, which was in fact much more stringent and much more severe, a much harder line was adopted, and that's very clear by the authorities from later period in Eastern Europe. But he wanted to really argue that the uh, attitude of Ashkenazi scholars for the entire duration of the period that we're studying was remarkably forgiving. And as a means of demonstrating this, Jacob Katz cited the uh, several rulings of Rashi, 
who co-opted the phrase from the Talmud. There's a famous phrase in the Gemara, it's from Masechet Sanhedrin, which says, Afal pi shechata Yisraelhu, right? Perhaps some of you are familiar with this, right? It's actually a reference to Achan, who uh, sinned uh, in back in the book of Joshua, um, and the people were held accountable for it, and they lost the battle um, as a result of the eye as a result. Um, and the Gemara says there makes an argument that Afal Yisraelhu, even though he, and again the Gemara itself is referring to an individual, even though he sinned, Yisraelhu, right, still considered an Israelite, still considered a member of the of the tribe, so to speak. Um, and so one, the idea is that once a Jew, always a Jew, you can be a sinning Jew, uh, but sinning, right, an apostasy is effectively a form of sinning, doesn't make you not Jewish, doesn't change your fundamental or essential status. Now, the Gemara itself was referring to this specifically in the context of Han, in the context of the Jewish people at the time in the book of Joshua, the Battle of the Eye, but Rashi in his commentary on that passage makes it clear that he understood that phrase from the Gemara to be metaphorically applicable to all Jews who sin or apostatize and uh, how, the, how the halacha, how Jewish law relates to them, again, even though they've sinned, even the most uh, heinous of sins, uh, nonetheless, they are still considered Yisrael. Um, so that was one of the ways in which Jacob Katz wanted to argue that the attitude of Ashkenazi scholars toward these apostates was positive. Um, and it's in this light that I want to make reference to those sources that you saw, uh, I hope, during Chavruta period. Um, the sources that I asked you to take a look at were actually from the period leading up to the one that we're discussing. Um, there was a, one tshuva of Rav Natronai Geon, who was one of the heads of the yeshivot of the Geonic Academies in Sura in the 9th century. Um, there was the second tshuva was Gershom ben Yehuda, Rabbeinu Gershom Me'or Hagola, as he's often referred to, who was one of the foundational figures of Ashkenazi Jewry. Uh, he lived around the year 1000. He was a teacher of a teacher of Rashi, so really one of the foundational figures of that community. And finally, this last tshuva from Rashi himself. Now, what, all, what was the question that all of these tshuvot addressed? What was the basic question that all of these responses... Okay, we're talking about a priest, right, a Kohen, who has left the Jewish fold, who has converted to another religion, who has apostatized, and then returned, or wanted to return to the Jewish fold. How does Jewish law treat this individual? Can this individual regain his status as a priest? Uh, so it's a, very, it's a specific classic question, but again, I think it's representative of attitude towards apostates in general, and even more, more pointedly, apostates who want to return to the Jewish community. Now, what was, what was the response of Rav Natron I get onto that particular question? Okay, so, so, so speci- meaning the bottom line, what was his halachic position? What, was, what, what happened to this priest who had left the community and wanted to regain his status as a priest upon return? No. Right? He can return to the community. Right? Rabbi Geon did not suggest that someone who has left the fold can never return, but he's going to return with a blemish. Right? And in the particular, in the case of the Kohen, he's going to return, but he will, not, he will be just like all other uh, lowly status Jews, right? just like everyone else as a Yisrael. Uh, in other words, he cannot retain, he cannot, excuse me, he cannot regain his status as a Kohen. There is a lasting blemish. 
Um, in contrast, what did Rabbeinu Gershom say? That second shuvah, yes? Yeah. Rabbeinu Gershom argued that one who returns to the community, right, he returns to the community and his holiness returns. In other words, this is full-fledged repentance, this is full-fledged tshuva. Um, and when this repentant priest regains his status as a priest and blesses, uh, blesses the community, it's actually forbidden to say to him, remember your former sins, right? And this goes back to what was pointed out beforehand, right? This is a bal tshuva, and you're not allowed to remind a bal tshuva of past sins. Um, and why did Rabbeinu Gershon seem to think that it, it was particularly important to welcome this repentant priest back into the community with open arms? Because uh, if you didn't, the others, the others who might do this would be discouraged. Okay, so in other words, we want to encourage people to return to the community, even when they've committed this uh, disloyal act, this, 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 uh, this really uh, terrible sin of conversion to another religion. And one means of encouraging people to return is to demonstrate to them that if they return, we will accept them back. We will open our arms. We will welcome them in. Um, what about Rashi? How, how did Rashi's attitude express itself in this tshuva? What did, what did Rashi say in this particular tshuva? He said yes, right? And I want to quickly turn, and uh, we, can, we can look at it uh, now on page four, but it's the same source that you saw on page eight. Um, source number one on page four, Rashi says, a priest who had apostatized and returned to Judaism is qualified to ascend the platform to bless the people, and these are his words. Such repentant apostate kohanim are analogous to the priests who have a physical blemish, right, of whom the Talmud says in Ta'anit that they may not serve at the altar, but they may bless the people. Right, so he's now focusing specifically on that question of whether they can bless the people, and the Talmud says yes. From this we conclude that a Kohen who had apostatized and returns in repentance is fit to ascend the platform to bless. For we do not find in the Talmud that a Kohen who has a blemish is unfit for the platform unless the blemish is on his hands, which he raises, and then we don't want everyone to see the blemish, as we find in Megillah 24b, because people will look at him. Furthermore, it says they should not serve in Jerusalem, but the word Jerusalem is especially mentioned to let us know that they could serve in Nov and Givon, the other sanctuaries. And all, and this is the critical point, right? Those were his sources, but now this is the critical point. And all the more so nowadays when there is no temple service and no sanctuary, he is certainly fit to ascend the blessing platform and to read the first portion of the Torah. So the Talmud in Ta'anit 27a refutes his suggestion that because he cannot serve at the altar, he cannot be blessed the people. And so far are the words of Rashi, right? This is a reported tradition of Rashi. This perhaps was not penned by Rashi himself, but this tshuva is widely ascribed to Rashi. Um, and in continence with this, in other responsa that you have not seen, Rashi and other sages of that time period ruled um, that in fact an individual who converts from Judaism, right, who is now living perhaps as a Christian or as the member, as the adherent of another faith, nonetheless, his acts of marriage are considered halachically valid acts of marriage. Right? So if he goes ahead and betroths a Jewish woman, Despite the fact that he's not living in the Jewish community, he's declared his uh, loyalty and fealty to another faith, if he goes ahead and betrothes the Jewish woman, halacha will relate to him as one who has betrothed the Jewish woman. Right now, you can imagine this actually opens the door to many very sticky situations because we're talking about people who are living outside of the bounds of the, of the scope of the Jewish community, but whose acts still bear halachic validity and halachic significance for the individuals upon whom they touch, the other individuals who still are living in the Jewish community. So you can imagine that this can become very sticky, 
But as far as it represents or re- reflects the attitudes toward the status of an apostate, right, it seems to suggest that for Rashi and other halakhic decisors of that period, these individuals who left the community, as far as halakha was concerned, were still considered Jews. Right, so again, their acts of marriage are valid. Um, with regards to financial matters, there are all sorts of questions come up as to whether, um, and this is perhaps a touchy subject for other reasons, but we know that there is a distinction between halakhically, uh, strictly halakhically, there's a distinction between uh, loaning to Jews and non-Jews in terms of interest and in terms of other financial implications. Can these individuals who leave the community be treated as non-Jews since they've left the community? in which a certain set of rules will apply, or do they continue to be treated as Jews? And generally speaking, the attitude was these individuals continue to be treated as Jews. Um, Although here there was a bit of shift. Um, But after the return to the community, and here is where the tshuva that we saw comes particularly into focus, um, according to the sages of this period, uh, the general consensus was that they may pray with the community, they may lead prayers with the community. Um, And again, we've in the future vote that you saw, there seems to have actually been a shift toward more inclusiveness from the period of the Geonim to this period in early Ashkenaz as represented by, by Rashi. And so again, all of this led uh, Professor Jacob Katz and other historians to conclude that Ashkenazi authorities treated the apostate the same way they would treat any other Jews. Right? For better or for worse. Yes. That's a very good question. Was that the same for women? That's, a, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Um, and unfortunately, beyond the scope of this particular discussion today, that's a really, it's, it's definitely worth taking a look at the way in which they addressed the authorities of this period and of any period, really, addressed questions that concerned a woman's moving in and out of the, of the community. Um, in the context of women, it very often comes up with regard to her sexual status. Um, because there's oftentimes a, uh, an assumption that one who has left the borders of the Jewish community um, has begun to behave in a way that does not accord with halakha. And in the context of women, and this already says a significant amount, the assumption is that the sexual mores and the sexual behavior will be different. And so then the question oftentimes for a woman, more so than a man, and that's already significant as far as that gender distinction is concerned, uh, when she returns to the community concerns her personal status particularly if she had been married beforehand. Um, So yes, it is definitely worth looking at those questions in the context of women, and it is not always the same as it is with regards to the attitudes toward men. Um, But with that being said, we're going to have to put that on the side now. I'd love to to look at that, to explore that on another. So, uh, I mean, again, that's a very live question in this period as well. Um, And I think... Again, this is actually a particular interest of mine, and I'm sorry that I can't get into it in detail right now, but that question of uh, sort of sexual fidelity um, and religious fidelity um, is a question that I think is very, very worth looking at in, in, in great detail for this time period and for other time periods as well, and what that says about the way in which halakhic authorities conceived of the borderlines of the community. Uh, so that's just a very brief uh, way of addressing your question, which I think is a very pregnant one. Yes? Okay, and uh, again, I, I think that your question, I mean, I, I don't want to get into the, 
let me take a step back for a moment. Um, I, I think that definitely uh, the, all of these questions that we're raising, both with regards to attitudes toward those who convert to Judaism, those who convert away from Judaism, are very live questions in many different time periods and geographical locations in Jewish history, including today. Um, and I think all of us are aware enough of the import of these questions for our contemporary circumstances uh, here in the United States, certainly in Israel. Um, as a historian, I do have to caution that it's important to look at these questions and to ask them for every different moment individually. Not because there aren't broad themes and lessons that we can learn, but because it's important not to conflate the different historical time periods. Um, so whereas I think that Spain um, and, and the questions that came up as a result of the persecutions in Spain and the ultimate expulsion from Spain is, I mean, these questions are very pertinent in that time context and it's certainly another a great moment to explore and examine the way in which halakhic authorities address these questions. I want to leave that on the side for the moment, just so, that, so as not to suggest uh, that their circumstances and their way of dealing with those circumstances is the same as what is happening in Ashkenaz. What instead I want to focus on is that even within the world of Ashkenaz, and even within the relatively short period, the short span of 200 years, there is actually a shift. And that shift is a, is a significant one and one that we should be aware of in terms of thinking about the way in which, and this is, comes back to our central theme, in terms of thinking about the way in which halakhic authorities and halakhic decisors respond to uh, changed circumstance. Um, so, back to, back to our moment. Um, so, if, in any event, if historians did, again, with Jacob Katz as the leading example, did traditionally believe that the Ashkenazi halakhic decisors were particularly welcoming of returning converts and fairly benign in their attitude even towards those who stayed outside the bounds of the Jewish community. Um, more recently, historians have, begin to, have begun to argue that in fact the, the, the reality, the sources point to a much more nuanced reality. Um, some scholars have attempted to demonstrate that over the course of this very time period that we're talking about, the 12th to the 13th century, attitudes toward apostates and even towards those who tried to rejoin the Jewish fold became much more ambivalent, much more problematic, um, perhaps in response to stricter church policy with regards to those who converted. And that, too, is a product of these uh, events that we've been discussing. I would note that immediately after the First Crusade, Right? And we said that the, the choice that many Jews faced in the First Crusade was either to submit to the Crusader sword or to agree to baptism, to force baptism. Following the First Crusade, the local church authorities themselves allowed for the Jews who had been forcibly baptized, which some did choose to do, allowed them, as a matter of official policy, to return to the Jewish community. They did not consider those forced baptisms valid. But over the duration, over the span of the period of time that we're looking at, church policy shifted significantly with regards to attitudes toward Jews who had been converted, even under forced circumstances, to Christianity. And the church became much more strict, much more hardline about those who had been baptized or those who had adopted the Christian faith, refusing to allow them or considering it a heresy if they left the church to return to the Jewish fold, even if, again, the original conversion, the original baptism was insincere. And so some historians claim that that is another piece to take into consideration when viewing the halachist attitude toward these people. 
Um, and some scholars, uh, I heard someone somewhere outside mentioning Professor Ephraim Kennerfogel, who some of you will perhaps uh, be familiar with, um, have demonstrated that over the course of this time period, halakhic authorities began requiring reconversion ceremonies for individuals who left, even, again, whether it was uh, forced or, uh, or voluntary circumstances, but individuals who converted to Christianity and then wanted to return to the Jewish community had to undergo a reconversion rite that was actually very similar in many of its manifestations to the way in which a non-Jew would have to undergo the giyur or conversion rite from the beginning. Right? Which seems to suggest, right, and here we're talking about a born Jew who had, again, left the Jewish community for a period of time and wanted to return, was being treated in ways that were not so unsimilar from one who was born a non-Jew and wanted to convert milachatchila. Uh, um, which, again, certainly seems to suggest that there's a shifting attitude and a much more hardline approach that is being adopted toward these individuals. Um, what I want to do in the brief amount of time that remains to us to address the sources that you've seen is to examine this question um, and really the complex picture that I think we're beginning to, to get a sense of specifically by considering the way in which Ashkenazi authorities during this time period related to the legal credibility of individuals and this goes back to that story uh, of the Rindfleisch massacres, the way in which Ashkenazi authorities related to the legal credibility of individuals who had left the community. Yes, I'm sorry. Just on a very simple level, as the Crusades maybe like accelerated or as the persecution accelerated, uh, really simplistically, um, if people were coming to rabbis to become Jewish and they were eager to, on a very simple level, it's like you have to be crazy. Like, become being a Jew in Europe at this time is becoming more and more of a liability and more and more of a risk. So you just have to question. I mean, back, I think that's a big part of the ambivalence is like, you know, back when in during King Shlomo's time when it was such an asset to be a Jew, they actually you had to close off the the, the floodgates of, of Giyur because it was just too <laughs> popular. But when, you know, Jews are being killed left and right and the quality of life is so low, you have to question what is this person thinking if they want to become communist. Okay, and so that may, that may return us to, that, to the question that we sort of ended off the first part of our session with um, in terms of how to explain this shift in the, the seemingly more welcoming attitude towards converts to Judaism, right? In, in a period in which the Jewish community seems to be increasingly under attack, uh, quite possibly these individuals who, again, we don't know exactly the numbers, but whatever the numbers may have been of individuals who did convert to Judaism, and we definitely have clear evidence that were, there were some of these, if they were Yechidei Skula, maybe they were Yechidei Skula, but we still did have some of these individuals who chose to actively become a part of the Jewish people. Um, and the shift in attitude, the, the sort of the greater and warmer and more all-encompassing embrace that halachic authorities seem to have adopted toward those individuals is perhaps, as you say, to be explained by the fact that the community saw itself, and the halachic authorities at least, saw the community as increasingly beleaguered, as increasingly under attack. Um, and, and so perhaps you know, again, these individuals really did distinguish themselves. Um, but now I, I want to, I wanna, we're adding further nuance to that question because now we're talking about individuals who started out as members of the Jewish community, who abandoned the Jewish community, and then maybe had a change of heart and wanted to join the Jewish community, um, but who are not quite in the same camp as those who started outside and voluntarily chose to become a part of the Jewish community to begin with. 
And those are the attitudes that I want us to examine now because I think that they sort of round out this picture of the way in which halakhic authorities uh, really related to the, the borders of the community. So again, what we're going to be focusing on now in, as, by way of addressing that, que- in order to address that question, um, are specifically on the status of these individuals in terms of their legal credibility, right? In terms of their ability to function as witnesses within a Jewish legal sphere, within a Jewish court of law. Um, and I want to argue that the attitude toward their, their legal credibility is a very important mark, marker of the way in which these halakhic authorities conceived of their personhood, of their, again, ability to function as a full-fledged personality within, uh, within the, the Jewish context. Um, and just, just as a word of, uh, of background, um, with regards to legal credibility in general, um, we know that uh, according to Jewish law, um, there are individuals, there are a whole series of individuals who are not credible according to Jewish law to function as witnesses in a Jewish court of law. Um, among them, of course, uh, famously are women, um, non-Jews, that which is important for our purposes, um, and also important, minors, slaves, uh, we could go on with that list, um, but also important for our purposes are various criminals or sinners are not credible to serve as witnesses in a, in a court of Jewish law. Pigeon racers is one of the examples, um, but all sorts of individuals who have committed sins, and then the question is, uh, after they've committed sins, can they regain their credibility? And usually the sins that we're talking about are sins of a monetary nature, um, where they've demonstrated that they are in fact not credible by their uh, uh, shady behavior. Um, but with regards, but the Gemara raises these questions with regards to other forms of sin as well, such as, for example, an individual who eats non-kosher food, or an individual who, in other ways, adopts behavior uh, that may well be in line with the types of sins or behaviors that these apostates were adopting uh, when they left the Jewish community. Um, and, and I'm sorry, just one thing that I meant to say beforehand that I just do want to clarify. Some of these apostates that we're talking about are forced apostates who temporarily adopted Christian behavior and a Christian outward appearance in the course of the types of riots and persecutions that we've been describing. But we also know that the 13th century was actually the height of voluntary Jewish conversion to Christianity. Right? So even not in the context of these riots, there was a significant uh, segment of the Jewish population who voluntarily converted to Christianity in that context. Now, we could ask ourselves and we could understand perhaps that the circumstances themselves uh, explain why the height of Jewish conversion in medieval Ashkenaz was in the 13th century. And we could ask ourselves, is this in fact, can this be considered a truly voluntary conversion if it was undertaken with all of the events that we've been describing in the background? Um, but nonetheless, there were many individuals who not, you know, with a sword held over their heads, did choose to leave the Jewish community, the Jewish fold, and convert to Christianity. Um, and so these are very live questions um, at, this, at this moment in time. And in order to trace this shift, I want to take a look, first of all, at... Uh, on your handout, um, another responsum of Rashi, who again has become our marker for the beginning of this time period, uh, so that we can again trace the shift. And I'm now looking at source number two on page four, uh, which, is re- which is Rashi's responsum regarding individuals and their credibility, individuals, apostate Jews and their credibility. 
And he writes as follows, regarding what you asked, whether their testimony, um, on page number four, page four, source number two, regarding what you asked, whether their testimony is testimony in light of the fact that they were coerced to live as non-Jews. So he does seem to be addressing a case of, uh, of forced of a forced apostasy, although he doesn't define what that means. And we're going to see that that does become a question, right? What, what constitutes forced coercion as opposed to voluntary coercion? But in any event, I respond to that, it all depends on the witnesses themselves. If it was established in court that the witnesses behaved in accordance with the law of Moses in secret and were not suspected of willfully committing those transgressions with the not, which the non-Jews coerced them to do publicly, and among themselves they were God-fearing and lamented and grieved over their coercion and begged forgiveness, the testimony of those type of people should be accepted and their testimony is valid. But if it was established that they behaved as abandoned, committing transgressions that they were not coerced to commit, in such a case, even though they, were su they subsequently repented righteously with all their hearts and all their souls and all their strength, they are not credible to testify now regarding what they saw in those days. This is the principle. Anyone who is qualified both at the beginning and the end, meaning both at, throughout the duration of their act, is qualified, and anyone who is unqualified at either the beginning or the end is unqualified, right? Meaning if at some point in time their behavior disqualified them, then they are disqualified. And these witnesses, they were unqualified at the beginning. And this is without going into uh, the particulars of the case that he was addressing, what seems to be Rashi's general attitude toward the credibility of apostates of apostate witnesses negative unless unless they were forced unless they were entirely forced apostates and outwardly although they behaved as Christians they continued to behave as Jews inwardly meaning this was really and at the moment that they were capable of returning to the Jewish community they returned to the Jewish community um, so that's, that's, again, I want to suggest that that's the marker of the beginning of this period. Um, is that in accordance with the other opinions that we've seen of Rashi's regarding Jewish converts to Christianity? Right, thinking about those other, the other, the other uh, examples we cited. Less inclusive, less tolerant. Less inclusive, less tolerant. Well, I mean, again, right, according to, uh, again, he said it depends on their behavior, but Rashi seems to be leaving open the door, at least, to the fact that forced converts can retain their credibility, right? Now, wh what, what's, the, what's the logic behind this, right, in terms of credibility? Let's imagine that somebody willfully converted to Christianity or was willfully behaving as a non-Jew, whatever the parameters of that are. And again, Rashi doesn't fully specify. Why, why, why should that person lose credibility? You can't trust them. Why? Well, because they're not, I mean, they're not committed to the law, right? They opted out. Right, oh. yeah, like, they have to demonstrate a commitment to the principles, and I assume, presumably, the attitude would be, well, you're not trustworthy altogether. Okay, so maybe there's a, a basic question as to their, meaning they've committed the ultimate act of disloyalty to the community, right, by, by converting to another faith, by opting out of the Jewish faith. And so therefore, their basic, their trust, their actual trustworthiness is now in question. Yes? Um, also, they might have a different set of values now. Like, they don't want to associate themselves with the values of the Jewish community. They've really abandoned that. Forgetting the fact that they abandoned it, the set of values 
Okay, so we can't, in other words, in a Jewish court of law that's running, that's, that's, that has certain basic value assumptions, we can no longer trust that they are in line with the assumptions or with the norms of the Jewish community. And so therefore, their word can't be taken at, you know, as, as a valuable statement within the Jewish framework because we don't believe that, they are, uh, that their word is in fact in line, perhaps, with the norms of the Jewish community. Now, that's... That makes sense, with a, perhaps, with regards to a person who is currently living as a member of another faith. But what we're talking about now, our concern, is addressing those who were living as members of another faith. I apologize about this. Were living as members of another faith, but have now returned to the Jewish community. Right? So think about this in light of Rashi's attitude toward the Kohen, who had apostatized and then returned to the Jewish community. And Rashi said pretty clearly that he could regain his status as a Kohen, certainly as far as blessing the people was concerned. If an individual returns to the Jewish community, can that individual regain his status as a credible witness? So why or why not? Yes. Yes. I'm sorry, I don't know names. Okay, and I think that that distinction that you make is an important distinction, right? If we said that at the beginning, that again, Rashi himself adopted that famous attitude of Afal Yisraelhu as a way of relating to apostates, right? So relating to apostates as essentially sinners, right? Just as you say, someone, you know, not in the context of apostasy, but someone goes through a period where they're not Shomer Mitzvot, where they don't observe all of the letters of Jewish law, and they eat non-kosher meat. Right? Can that person afterwards, does that person retain that status forever? Or does that person, if that person repents, is that person able to be accepted back into the community? So this has very much to do with the way in which we perceive the efficacy of tshuva in general. Or does someone who actively converts to another faith, does that person, is that person undergone an act or a transformation that is beyond simple sinning? Right? That person is not simply an individual who is eating non-kosher meat or who is transgressing Jewish law on other counts, but that person has already committed something which is of greater significance that perhaps cannot be reversed through the process of tshuva in the same way that other acts of sinfulness could be reversed. And I think that that's another, that is perhaps a helpful way of framing this question. Um, I see a few more hands. I'll take them quickly. Yes? Okay, so you want to suggest that perhaps this, the attitude towards 
towards testimony should be looked at distinctly from the attitude towards other expressions of this person's uh, belonging to the Jewish community because this is an expression of belonging that has impact beyond the person himself. Right? It's not only about whether this person can be part of the prayers or whether this person can... Right? This, has, this has further impact. I will just remind you, right? and I think that that's, that's also a worthy distinction, I will just remind you that I mentioned beforehand that some of these questions came up in the context of marriage and divorce. Some of these questions came up in the context of monetary relationships, which definitely are realms of halakha that also very much impact not only on the individual himself, but on all the people in the community that he has ongoing dealings with. Um, and there, generally speaking, um, the attitude of the early authorities was to consider the person a Jew, despite the fact that it potentially raised very many sticky situations. Um, yes, I'm sorry. In the green shirt, I'm sorry. I know you had your hand up for a while. Okay, so if I understand what you're saying, I think, I think the point is also an important one, which is that a further, I think, productive way of expanding perhaps this study of the, the, the ways in which Ashkenazi halakhic authorities drew the borders of the community is to look at a number of different borderline personalities um, and to compare and contrast, right? And women were borderline personalities um, in that respect, um, as were non-Jews certainly, um, as were uh, slaves and minors, right? These are all the people who are on the margins of the community and help to define what is the heart of the community, right? The way in which halakha treats these individuals or the way in which halakha uh, negotiates situations that involve these individuals also help define what is considered the heart of normalcy, right? The, 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 the heart of the community. Um, and I want to suggest it's really in that light, and you're correct, right, that properly speaking, we should look at these chuvot in light of the same halachist treatment of those individuals, I want to suggest that the way in which they treated particularly these liminal individuals, right, who were half in and half out or back and forth between the community, at this moment, which is very touchy um, in that particular regard, um, is in fact a way of determining what they considered to be uh, properly uh, full-fledged uh, member of the community and what they considered to be out. Um, and, and you're right, and, and perhaps we should expand in uh, perhaps another opportunity that we have to learn together, we should expand the conversation to include other liminal individuals. Um, in any event, I want to return, I know there are a few more questions and I would ask you to hold them, um, but because our time is, uh, is ticking, I want to return to the case that, that I set out for you, this specific case regarding that unfortunate, that poor woman from 
Worms, right, whose status was thrown into question because now it's not clear whether the witnesses to her husband's death can be deemed credible, accepted as credible witnesses, or whether their entire status as witnesses is going to be thrown into question, meaning that this poor woman herself will be thrown into a liminal personal status, right? One whose whose, the death of whose husband has not been proven uh, unquestionably such that she really is stuck, uh, cannot remarry if she has not yet remarried, and again, if she has remarried, has now uh, perhaps produced mamzirim. Um, so I want to return to that particular case because as I said beforehand, I think that this is a particular moment um, at which all of these issues come to the fore. Now I mentioned beforehand, um, an individual, the agent of that heir, Rabbi Yedidia ben Yisrael, um, who was a well-known scholar who issued a ruling uh, and certainly issued various uh, statements with regards to this particular case. Um, we're going to take a look at his response. We're going to take a look at three responses, basically. We're going to take a look at his response. We're going to take a look at the response of the Rush, who was an important figure that I mentioned beforehand. And we're going to take a look at a third response, um, that of Rabbeinu Chaim or Zerua, who we'll get to in a few moments. I want to suggest that these three responses that we're going to see represent really the range of approaches on this issue. Rabbi Yedidi ben Israel, as we're going to see, the agent of the air is on one end of the spectrum. The rush is on the far end of the spectrum. And Rabbeinu Chaim or Zerua falls somewhere in the middle. And I think that that will perhaps... Uh, be a way of conceptualizing the different approaches to this question. So let's take a look right now um, at source number three on page five of your handout. This is the response of, or it's a, really a piece, a very small piece of a much, much longer uh, back and forth between Rabbi Zidah ben Israel and the other important figures in this case. Um, where he addresses specifically the question of those witnesses' credibility. Now, keep in mind, Rabbi Yedidi ben Yisrael was the agent of the heir who is challenging, right? He's the main challenger to the credibility of those witnesses. Um, it's not clear how he was appointed the legal guardian in this case, but an interesting, perhaps, piece of background is that his own son was killed in not the massacres in Würzburg that we're talking about, but when the massacres reached the city of Nuremberg, where he was a resident. Um, his own son was killed in those massacres, so there is some background here. Um, how that influenced him, how that uh, affected his attitudes is not something that we can state definitively, but I do think it's something that's worth keeping in mind. Um, right? I think one of the live questions for people of this time, when so many individuals were killed for upholding their faith was a very a deep question, uh, sometimes unspoken, with regards to how those who managed to survive the massacres actually managed to do so. Right? We're talking about a community in which 900 individuals were killed. How did these witnesses, how did they manage to survive? Right? How were they able to, to be alive and to function as witnesses after the riots? Right, for someone like Rabbi Yedidah Bar Yisrael, whose own son was a victim, right, that question is a very live question, is a very poignant and, and difficult question to contend with. Um, and as we're going to see, his comments regarding the survivors of the Würzburg massacre betray a very deep suspicion of the survivors. Um, he almost accuses them of disloyalty by virtue of their survival. Right? He seems to suggest that there's only one way that they could have survived these massacres, and that was by betraying their faith. So now I want to take a look at what he actually writes regarding the status of these witnesses. 
um, in source number three, he says, your own eyes see that it was testified regarding Zeligman and Jonathan, those, that was the names of the witnesses, that, or two of the three witnesses, that all the days they lived among the non-Jews after they apostatized, they did not refrain from any transgressions, whether in private or in public, and they worshipped idolatry and they ate all of their impurities. They themselves admitted this and asked for atonement. And Jonathan told me himself that he remained among the non-Jews for more than half a year. And according to your own words, since you concede that a thief according to Torah law is disqualified from testifying on behalf of a married woman, they are both disqualified, Zeligman and Jonathan, for it has been testified that they were absolute non-Jews and so they admitted themselves. So what, how would you characterize, right? What, 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 by the way, is his ruling with regards to these witnesses? Clearly they're invalid, right? Why? Right? What is the, what is the uh, heart of his argument here? Why are they clearly invalidated? But how does he how does he prove that they did it willingly? Right? What is his argument? Okay, they could not have been unseen. They could not have been forced converts because if they had been forced converts, then what would have happened as soon as the massacres subsided, as soon as the riots, the violence subsided, they would immediately have returned to the Jewish community. And the fact that they did not immediately return to the Jewish community, they continued to live as non-Jews for an additional significant, a half year or however long it was, a significant period of time after the massacres, after the riots had subsided, demonstrates that they wanted to live with with a non-Jewish community. Demonstrates that this was not only because there was a sword over their heads, but that this was in fact an act which had deeper and perhaps more willing roots to it. Again, we can't know for sure, right? I mentioned that fact because I do think that it's an important fact for understanding the tensions that are going on here, right? But we can't know that for sure. This is his attitude, and again, I've only brought you a snippet of his response, but he goes on to prove this according to various halachic sources. Also, this testimony, even no matter how tenuous it is, it's kind of vital for continuing normal life. Like, people have to get married again, and you have to make more kids because you just lost most of the community. So, like, there's a certain, it, it kind of, the normalcy that's going to return eventually, whatever that is, hinges on the veracity of the testimony, even if... Okay, so that's, that's a critical question, right? Meaning, what is the implication of this particular attitude? Well, in the immediate circumstance, what's the implication of this, of this attitude, of this approach? The woman's not going to be able to remarry, right? If her witnesses are invalidated, then she's stuck. And by the way, this, the, 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 uh, the, the halakhic discussion actually, uh, the parts that I have not provided for you demonstrate that these same witnesses were actually critical witnesses not only for this particular woman, but they functioned as witnesses in a whole slew of Aguna cases that you can imagine resulted in, in the context of these massacres. So if they were invalidated, it was not only going to be bad for this particular woman in Varms, it was going to be bad for a whole number of other women. Right? And as you point out, right, this, the, the, this attitude is, is problematic if we think about a community that needed to pick up the pieces afterwards, that needed somehow to return to normalcy, to go on, to live, to, to re-flourish, to re-establish itself. How can we explain such an attitude that was going to really create such, a, such, such problematic... Uh, a scrap of testimony that this woman's husband has died. You can get a scrap of it such that life could resume... Right, so you would imagine, you would assume that that would be the attitude of halakhic authorities who want some way to reestablish normalcy. So how can we explain, right, in light of everything that you're pointing out, how can we explain this attitude on the part of Rabbi Yitzhak Bar Yisrael? Yeah. Well, I, just, I have a quick question. Um, so you're saying that the 
Sure. There would be no, I'm sorry, I missed the last few words. There would be no way to legally Now again, it, clearly, right, nine hundred people have died. Right? But what's at stake here is the legal proof, as you say. Now that legal proof is is particularly significant or critically important in the context of these Aguna cases. Right? In the case of other individuals, it's very unfortunate. I mean, no one was doubting the fact that this man was dead. Right? No one said that this man was alive. The question is, can we prove it legally? And the main implication for that legal proof has to do with the status of his former wife, of his widow, and also with the status of his inheritance. And keep in mind, that's again why this is being, specifically, right, locally, why this is being contested now. So it does have implications, and yes, meaning if we disqualify these witnesses, and these, were the, these same individuals functioned as witnesses in a whole slew of other cases, that, that came about as a result of this massacre, then yes, we're throwing a lot of things into confusion. And exactly as you point out, this is, I mean, how can we leave a community in this way, right? So why, what, what, what attitude, what deeper, what deeper response does the ruling of Rabbi Yedidia Bar Yisrael represent, right? Why would a halakhic authority adopt this approach? And that's, that's a question that I don't know that we can answer on the basis of these, you know, sort of the, the, the scanty facts that we have at our disposal here. But I do want to suggest that a very live issue for all of the scholars here was in the face of persecution, how do we, how do we draw the borders of the community? How are we going to shore up the community in the face of persecution? How are we going to make the community strong? And what you're presenting is one approach. One approach is we make the community strong by allowing the community to grow, to reflourish, to rebuild, to pick up the pieces, to move on quickly, right, by, by even ruling leniently or by even relaxing the rules of halakha when necessary in, in the face of all of this. But I think that the approach that Rabbi Yedidia Bar Yisrael represents, and we can see this reflected in many other, uh, again, this is representative of, of, of other halakhic scholars as well, is a very different approach, which seems to suggest that the way to respond to this type of attack, right, the sense that the community is being beleaguered, is being attacked from all sides, is to shore up the boundaries, right, to make the boundaries non-porous, to make the boundaries very solid, so that individuals who are coming in and coming out, right, these, these liminal individuals who have been on the other side, can't just slip back in, right, even if it's going to to help us halakhically to resolve the situations, and even if they're going to be victims, such as this poor, unfortunate women, woman, um, as a result of this halakhic attitude, perhaps this attitude was evident or was reflective of an approach which felt that it was necessary to kind of dig in us, the elite, the representatives, the representatives of halakha, necessary to dig in our heels and to, again, to seal all the breaches in that barrier as a means of maintaining our core. Um, but that being said, Rabbi Yedidia Bar Yisrael's approach was definitely not the only one in this context. And I want to take a look now at a respondent that I think gives expression to that opposite attitude. Um, and that's the expression, and that's the respondent that you have next on your, on your sheets here, which is the respondent of the Rosh himself, Rabbi Asher Bar Yechiel, who I mentioned was one of the Dayanim, was one of the, uh, 
was one of the judges in that second Beitin and was the one who was really responsible for collecting all of these sources and transferring the court file to Spain. Rabbi Asher ben Yechiel writes as follows, we must not disqualify them out of doubt. Right? He says, keep in mind, by the way, we don't know exactly what they were doing when they were on the other side. We must not disqualify them out of doubt, for the majority of those who apostatize did not eat non-kosher meat with appetite, meaning willingly, rather apostatized out of fear of death, and this fear obligated them to behave in their non-Jewish ways so that they would not kill them, the non-Jews would not kill them. And it is all considered coercion. In other words, given the circumstances, everything that they did for the entire duration of the time that they lived among the non-Jews is considered honest, is considered coercion. And it is slightly troublesome that they remained among the non-Jews after they had the opportunity to flee, right? He says that is a bit of a, a, a difficulty, a troublesomeness, right? That they didn't immediately return to the Jewish community. However, the sword of God slashes and the fire of God rages around them. Therefore, they did not know what was up and what was down until they heard that God had remembered his people and given them respite. Then they hurried to fear God. Right? So in other words, the rush, and keep in mind, the rush himself has experienced these events. He says, you know... Don't judge people's actions under these circumstances. You know, it's true that they did not immediately return to the Jewish community, but they had no idea what was going on. 900 people who were just in their immediate community were just killed. They didn't know what, yeah, they didn't know what was up and what was down. And there were those, and he adds, there were those who remained for the sake of heaven to save their children, and not one of them acted with abandon to eat non-kosher meat with appetite. For they had done so, if they had done so willfully, why did they subsequently return and repent? And he says, you know, Forget about the fact that they stayed for another half a year among their non-Jewish neighbors. The fact that ultimately they returned to the Jewish community is the most important evidence of the fact that ultimately they did repent with full hearts. Right? If they had wanted to live as non-Jews, they would have just stayed there forever. They would, there was no reason for them to return to the Jewish community even after half a year. And so keep in mind that some people did that for the sake of heaven, right? maybe to save their children. Um, by the way, maybe they stayed... Maybe they stayed amongst the non-Jews so that they would be able to function as witnesses and to help out women, women like this unfortunate Aguna. Right? I think the rush is raising those questions as well. And my master wrote that he has witnesses that they ate non-kosher meat with appetite. Right? That's, he's ref- referring to Yedid Bar Yisrael. You say you have witnesses that they ate non-kosher meat with appetite, but we have still not seen or heard this testimony. And who could testify to this anyway? For do they see into their hearts such, a, such that they could testify that they did so with appetite? And even I, who was not present there, can testify that they ate the non-kosher meat and performed other violations. And this they were obligated to do out of fear, and it is all considered coerced, as I have written. But there is no person who can testify that they did so with appetite. Right? No one can see into the hearts of anyone else, and no one can tell me that their acts were willful and not forced, particularly given the circumstances. Right? So I think that the rush here really represents the far end of the spectrum, really the opposite, a very opposite approach of Rabbi Didya Bar Yisrael, in terms of how to relate to these individuals who did live for an extended period of time in their non-Jewish guise, among their non-Jewish neighbors, but ultimately did want to return to the Jewish community and in fact did want to return to the Jewish community and help out fellow Jews by so doing. We're not going to, in the interest of time, uh, we're not going to be able to take a look at source number five, which is a response by the Rashba. Uh, the Rashba was actually an important halachic scholar in Spain at the time. But even though he was, again, in Spain, not in the Ashkenazi context, not a direct party to any of these events, and not one of the witnesses or decisors or halachic authorities who was called upon to render a decision, 
this case was so live and apparently gained such wide, uh, such wide atten- widespread attention that even the Rashbath, living in Barcelona at the time, decided to pin a responsum on this matter. Um, so that, that uh, is worth taking a look at at a different time. But I want to, I wanna, uh, by way of concluding this particular issue and then offer some more general conclusions, I want to take a look at source number six. And I see that you have a question. If it's a quick comment that's directly related, I'll be happy to take it. <coughs> Okay, so that's a fine question. And Okay, so that's a fine question, and I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to put it on the side and leave it for the concluding remarks. Okay, but very quickly, um, let's take a look at source number six, which is the final response that we're going to see on this particular. Uh, episode, and that's the response of Rabbi Chaim Orzarua. Rabbi Chaim Orzarua, son of the famous Rabbi Isaac ben Moshe Orzarua, was living in Austria at the time, so he is an Ashkenazi scholar, but also not from the immediate context of the events in question, but he too hears about this episode and renders an opinion. Um, and he writes as follows, the coerced ones who returned and testified upon their return that while they were still among the non-Jews, they saw Rabbi Simon, son of Rabbi Jacob, murdered. Right. So this, that was the, uh, the man who whose wife is in question now. They saw him lying before the entrance to his home. It appears that they are credible, even if it becomes clear that they ate non-kosher meat with appetite. Right, so whereas the rush said there is no way to prove that they ate non-kosher meat with appetite, don't even raise that question, you can't know what somebody else did as in, in a forced or a willing fashion. Rabbi Chaim Orzerua is writing here that even if it does become clear that they ate with appetite, they can still be credible, because now they have returned and they are surely qualified. Now they are reporting the truth. And for this, we don't require them to be religiously qualified from the beginning. Here we don't require actual testimony, only to know that this is the truth as they have spoken now. Here, when he testifies now, after he has returned, regarding what he saw in his waywardness, and now he is surely speaking the truth, even though at the time he witnessed the event, he was not qualified. It appears that he is credible because we do not require valid testimony, etc., etc., etc. What is his ruling? Yes? Okay, so he, uh, Rabbi Chaim Orzarua is taking into, into, excuse me, is taking into consideration the fact that we're talking about an Aguna case where the general rules re- regarding testimony are relaxed, such that in an Aguna case we do accept testimony from normally disqualified individuals. Right? We know that women can testify in Aguna cases even though they're normally disqualified, right? Which is an important fact that we haven't uh, that we haven't discussed. But the whole context of this case is a context where we accept normally disqualified witnesses, whether they're women, whether they're non-Jews, whether they're the aguna herself under certain circumstances. So given that we're in, we're talking about a case in which the normal rules of testimony are relaxed in such extreme fashion, of course, says Rabbi Chaim or Zara, we're going to accept the credibility of these witnesses. However, right, and again, I'm, I'm using um, Rabbi Chaim as a marker of the, of the middle position, However, what does he say? Why do we accept these witnesses and why do we accept all of those normally disqualified people in such a case? Because what we care about is the veracity of the report that they're presenting. 
and their lack of credibility, right? Their their untrustworthiness might have pertained back when they were living among the non-Jews, right? If they were still living as non-Jews and they came to report this, then maybe we would question whether we can in fact trust their report as being accurate and true. But, okay, but now given that they're back in the Jewish community, we trust that now, now that they've returned to the community, they're certainly telling the truth. And in this kind of case, all that we care about is the truth. And as far as telling the truth is concerned, there's no reason to disqualify these individuals. However, what is the implication, the unspoken implication of Rabbeinu Chaim's statement? That if we wanted accurate, if we, if we wanted, I'm sorry, not a mere truth report, as in an Aguna case, but if we wanted substantive testimony of the kind that normally disqualified individuals could not render, then I think the implication of his statement is we would not be able to look to them as fully credible witnesses. So he kind of leaves them in this in-between category. Um, I do not think that he accepts them with full embrace the way the Rush does, but he certainly doesn't push them far out the way Rabbi Yudhidya Bar Yisrael does. Um, and so I think what we have here um, in this very specific case is a range of different attitudes that the Ba'aleha Halakha, that the Halakhic scholars took when it came to their approaches and their ways of dealing with individuals who had left the community and subsequently wanted to return in terms of accepting them or not accepting them as full-fledged members. Now, as a way of just pulling this all together, um, the reason we were looking at this case was as a means of considering how Halakhic decisors or how Halakhic scholars respond to shifts in reality, to changes in circumstance. And what, what I've been trying to give you a window onto over the course of our, our, our discussion this afternoon is a, very, uh, is a changed circumstance over a fairly long duration of time that only when we take this sort of broad look, this wider scope, can we begin to appreciate how the historical circumstance shifted and how perhaps halakha shifted in continents with regards to attitudes towards those who convert to Christianity, uh, excuse me, with regards to attitudes to those who convert to Judaism, who want to join the community willingly, voluntarily, of their own accord, who seem to have been received with a warmer embrace over the course of this period, to those who became these kind of liminal individuals slipping in and out of the community, whose status became more skeptical. Again, there was not in absolute or one approach to this issue. It's clearly an issue which is complex and which requires a lot of grappling on the part of the scholars of this time period. But I think that the, the different answers and the ambivalent attitude and the, really, uh, the range of different positions that we see on this is evidence of a, a, a need, a shifting need on the part of the Balei Halakha to draw the boundaries of their community in perhaps a different way than they could at an earlier perhaps more naive, perhaps more innocent time when they did not need to contend with the implications of this reality uh, for the boundaries and the borders um, and, and the inclusiveness of their community. So with that I will conclude um, and I hope that in some way this can uh, add to the picture that you'll be painting together over the course of this week uh, in terms of halachic or general uh, attitudes responsive to the Jewish community to change.